we're in our, our series, Tell Me the Story of Jesus, and um, this, this morning's passage and message, I believe it's going to challenge all of us. It's been challenging me all week in my walk with God and my relationship with God and, and just what God's called me to do as a minister, what he's called me to do as a pastor uh, to the church, and I believe it's going to do the same for us all. Our passage is actually the very last story in Scripture which is focused on young Jesus. Uh, we're going to be Luke chapter 2. We're going to be beginning in verse 39, and we're going to be reading through the end of the chapter. Our passage is about tween Jesus. Uh, this is 12-year-old Jesus. It's the last story in Scripture concerning Jesus as a child. And to begin to begin in our minds ready for what happens in this passage, is anyone here willing to admit that your parents ever left you or forgot you somewhere? Some of y'all are sitting with your parents, so you're like, I don't know if I should, like, you know, really make them feel bad. But, um, you know, growing up, um, I, I, I'll admit, I was forgotten and left numerous times, sometimes at church, sometimes at school. And um, I, I made a vow when we had kids that I was never going to do that to my own kids, and I have only done it twice, once to Ethan and once to Abby. I had to even it out. Um, <laughs> And both times, and so what I do, and Jamie makes fun of me about this, I actually set an alarm, like when school's in session, I actually set an alarm uh, to remind me I need to go and pick them up or get in that pickup line, even though I, it's something I have to do every single day. Um, I just, I remember the feeling of being left at school, and for some of y'all who are younger than me, you will never understand what it's like to be left at school growing up, because, see, you all were just pick out your little cell phones, and you would dial mom and dad and be like, hey, mom, dad, where are you? When I was a kid, if, if you had a cell phone, you had a backpack, because that was the cell phone. It was on a backpack. And so I did not have the backpack accessory. And so what you had to do is, do you all remember uh, pay phones? You had to find a pay phone, and you had to go. And as a kid, I never had any money. Uh, you know, I just, I didn't. And so I would have to go make a collect call. Who's ever made a collect call? Yes, aren't those fun? That just seems like the most embarrassing thing you have to do because you actually have to listen to the other person accept the call or not. And, and I made so many collect calls to my folks because they left me or forgot me somewhere that they would just hear, you have a collect call from Michael Hurchin, and I would just hear them hang up, and I knew they were on their way. I, I made so many, I knew that was what was happening. Now, sometimes I was left because I was in the wrong place. I wasn't where I was supposed to be. Like, I was left at church at times simply because I was off playing or goofing around, and my brother left because he was driving at the time. My mom assumed I was with my brother, so she left. My dad assumed I was with my mom, who assumed I was with my brother, so he left. And so I was left. You know, <laughs> I was still at church, and so I would have to call them. And again, no cell phone. So you had to memorize phone numbers. You all remember that? that tedious task of memorizing phone numbers. I don't even know. I have to think about my wife's cell number. Like when people ask me and I have to fill out a form, sometimes I have to pull out my phone and look it up because I don't memorize those things. But if you've ever been forgotten, if you've ever been left somewhere, then you can relate to our passage this morning because tween Jesus, 12-year-old Jesus, is left in Jerusalem. And what we're going to see in our passage is that there is a dangerous assumption that we all have to deal with in life and deal with in the church that this passage brings out. But, parents, there is also a lot of 
pep talk for us as we walk through this passage. If you ever forget your child any time on out, and when you go to finally pick them up and they give you that look, you can look at them and say, well, at least I didn't forget Jesus, right? <laughs> it kind of sets the bar. <laughs> well, let, let's read our passage, and then we're going to see this dangerous assumption we all have to deal with. Beginning in verse 39 of the Gospel of Luke chapter 2. And when they, this is speaking of Mary and Joseph, when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom and the feast was ended. As they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintance. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting amongst the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And his parents saw him. They were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature, and in favor with God and man. Now in our series, we're going through the Gospels and we're bringing them all together. And one thing that hopefully you've picked up on is we've been in the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke quite a bit so far in the series. That is because Matthew and Luke are the only Gospels which contain the early years of Jesus. After this event, we're going to jump forward about 18 to 20 years into Jesus' life when His ministry begins. But as we've been looking over the last couple of weeks in the Gospel of Matthew, verse 39 and 40 of the passage we just read are the connecting passages to what happened in Matthew chapter 2. They summarize Jesus' life, and not just with the dedication that happened in the previous chapter here in Luke 2, but also summarize the fleeing uh, from Bethlehem to Egypt and then coming back to the land of Israel and settling in Nazareth. Why Luke did not feel led to bring those events into his letter, we don't know. But Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23 give us what actually happened in this period of time of verse 39 and 40. Because of the story of Matthew, we know there's a lot that Mary and Joseph went through to do according to the law of the Lord. Again, not just speaking of the dedication of Jesus, but also speaking of their obedience to God as He continued to guide and lead them as they fled from Herod's wrath. The point of connecting the verses 39 and 40 to Matthew chapter 2 is to show that Mary and Joseph were obedient, they were committed, and they were dedicated to do all that God was requiring them to do in raising Jesus. They summarized Jesus' first 12 years of life on this planet. And so as we look at these two verses and we take into consideration what we read in Matthew, we would have to give Mary and Joseph an A-plus as a parent, wouldn't we? They've kept Jesus alive so far. So far, so good. Everything is going as planned. But we come into verse 41 
And Luke gives us a little more detail about this family unit. It says, now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom. Again, we see the dedication, the commitment that Mary and Joseph have in raising Jesus. And so far, everything is good. The emphasis here in verse 41 and 42 is on why they were going to Jerusalem and the age that Jesus was. They went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. And what we have is this custom is spoken in verse 42 is that all Jewish males were obligated to go to Jerusalem three times a year for the three major Jewish festivals. But we find Joseph is taking the entire family unit with him. And at this particular moment in time, Jesus is 12. Now, it is believed by many that this custom didn't actually begin until 6 A.D. because that's when Archelaus was removed from power, which we read about last week in the Gospel of Matthew. That would make a lot of sense because Joseph was very apprehensive about going near Jerusalem where Archelaus was until he was removed. Jesus' age of being 12 is also significant. According to Jewish custom, when a child would turn 13, they were considered a son of the covenant. In other words, the years, this was the year before Jesus' bar mitzvah. The bar mitzvah was a calling and a celebration for a child to now be obligated to the law of God. It was to consider their coming of age, their rite of passage, their awareness of God's law and standard. Because this happened at the age of 13, what Jewish families would do according to tradition and custom is they would take their Jewish, Jewish boy at the age of 12 or 11 to Jerusalem to experience the Feast of Passover. They wanted them to be prepared on what was going to be required of them as they came into adulthood. They wanted them to take in all the surroundings before they celebrated their commitment to be a covenant or child of the law. One thing we know about Jesus is Jesus didn't need to be prepared, did he? Jesus was fully aware of what the Feast of Passover was. He was fully aware of what happened. He was actually there when the original Passover happened. But it, the point is, it's showing that Mary and Joseph are holding to traditions. They're holding to customs. They're committed. They're dedicated to what God has taught them to do as a good family unit. Now, the Feast of Passover, we read of that in the book of Exodus. It was a celebration and remembrance of God bringing His people out of the bondage of slavery in Egypt. In this week of celebration, that's how long it would have lasted... There would have been music, there was food, there was gatherings, there were sacrifices going all week long. And we have to keep in mind, Jesus isn't here for the reminder. Jesus was God in the flesh. He is the Alpha and Omega, so He was there in Exodus. He's fully aware of what this event meant. But again, Joseph and Mary are dedicated. They're committed to be obedient to what God has laid upon their heart to do as righteous believers. The ending of the festival would be on the night before Passover, where the family unit would gather. There would be a lamb that they had cooked, and they would eat the entire lamb with sandals on their feet and a staff in hand as to commemorate the time where they had to flee with haste out of Egypt. And God would lead them. They would retell of God's story of redemption that you can read in the book of Exodus. They would retell of the blood of the lamb over the doorpost. They would remember the promises of God's deliverance and the promises of His deliverance to come. Here's the difference. Joseph and Mary were sitting already with the Deliverer, physically there, celebrating God's deliverance to come as the Deliverer was in their presence. And they could see Him in His eyes, and they could talk to Him, and they could tell the stories. Now Luke, he doesn't elaborate on the festivities, and he wouldn't have to. Because as the people would be reading this letter, 
they would have been aware of all the customs, all the traditions, everything that went into the Feast of Passover. And everything seems to be going well until we come to verse 43. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintance. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. Now, this should be mind-blowing because we've been walking through the stories. And we know how careful Mary and Joseph have been to protect Jesus. They've left their hometown. They've left their, their homeland. They've went to Egypt. They've come back and they've settled in Nazareth. We know that they've been very careful to make sure Jesus stayed safe. But we also have to keep in mind when we come in this passage, we have about eight to ten years since the last event with Jesus where there's been no threat. It's just been a time of peace that we know of. Nothing is mentioned in Scripture as Jesus continued to grow besides what we read in verse 40. The child grew and became strong. There were no threats on the horizon. Herod was gone. There were nowhere close to Archelaus. But how do you forget Jesus? How do you forget the Son of God? Why didn't God come like before to Joseph and say, Hey, Joseph, you kind of forgot something important back in Jerusalem. My kid. You got one job, Joseph, right? I mean, <laughs> one job. Keep an eye on Jesus. Make sure he's growing up the way he's supposed to grow up. But we have tween Jesus in Jerusalem, no cell service, no family. This is literally Macaulay Culkin Jesus right now. He is home alone, okay? He, he's there, and it, it brings this strange question. But before we start questioning Mary and Joseph's parenting skills, you have to be aware that it was a common practice for friends and family to travel together in a caravan. It was safer that way as they would travel on roads. It was also a common practice and expectation that as they went, the kids would be in there somewhere. You know, like, so when we go to my parents' house or Jamie's parents' house, we assume the kids are in the house somewhere. We just may not know exactly where they are because, you know, it's mommy and daddy time to just, you know, ah, you know breathe and have parental conversations. Mary and Joseph were having, that was their expectation. We left, our caravan left. We assumed Jesus is in there. Jesus is mingling with the other children, other family members, other, other friends. And he's somewhere in there. He's in the group. They assumed, that's what the word supposed him to be there. They assumed he was there in the group. And they went for a full day's travel. Now, it's by foot. So you're talking about 20 to 25 miles by foot in a caravan and then they finally arrive to the place that they're going to stop. Can you imagine Mary and Joseph's conversation that night? I thought you had him. I thought you had him. Jesus wasn't there. And they began frantically searching. I imagine in this moment, even though they've been A-plus parents, I imagine that they felt like the worst parents in history. They had misplaced the Messiah. It brings up an interesting question, though. Between Jesus, 12-year-old Jesus, all-knowing Jesus, would have known, even without his parents saying that, would have known his parents were leaving. He would have known he was expected to be in the party that was leaving, and yet 12-year-old Jesus does not go with them. Here's the question. Does Jesus dishonor his parents? 
Someone said no. Put yourself in their shoes. If you had an expectation of your kid, and they knew that expectation, and then you find out they didn't live up to that expectation, would you feel that they dishonored you? Absolutely. So here's the question. Did tween Jesus dishonor his parents by remaining in Jerusalem when he knew he was expected to be with them? No. That was more emphatic. He's perfect. He was, yes, he was honoring his father. Even though Jesus knew he was expected to be with them, he could not have dishonored his parents because if he dishonored his parents, he broke law number six, honor your father and your mother. And if he would have broken that law, he could not be the perfect atoning sacrifice and our faith is in vain. He did not dishonor them. Now, I see little Edwards over here. That does not give you permission to do that. <laughs> he had a big smile on his face. Ah. <laughs> And going back to in verse 46, so they realize he's not there. After three days, verse 46, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking the questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, I'm sorry, and all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Three days. Why did it take so long? Is that like to point to the, the cross and the, the burial and all that? Is that what it is? No. Uh, it is... Three days. So how far do they travel out? A day. So if they traveled a day out, how, how long would it take to get back? A day. And then they had a day to find Jesus. Three days. So they were pretty well moving along. Day out, day back. And they find Jesus in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening and asking questions. And though the text here says in the temple, it's talking about the whole temple grounds at this point because we know that Mary is there as well and Mary would not have been allowed into the inner parts of a temple because she was a woman. So this most likely took place in the outer courts, which was a traditional place for teachers to be with their pupils. So at this point in time, as they arrive back, I would love to be Joseph in this moment because you could easily say, well, we know he doesn't get this from me, Right? He, he has no biological traces to Joseph whatsoever. Come on, admit it, parents. How many times does your kid do something and you're like, you need to do something with your kid to your spouse, right? You disown them in that moment. I wonder if Joseph is just like, what in the world are we getting ourselves into where he comes back and, and they begin to question Jesus. They find him in the temple. They find him where they did not expect him to be. Have you ever found your kids somewhere you didn't expect them to be or doing something you didn't expect them to do? How do you respond as a parent? If it's a good thing, I guess you respond with a smile, but if it's, you know, they're being honorary kids, do you hug them? Spank them? Beat them? Is that what you said? That's recorded now. <laughs> Discipline them in some way? Ground them? Let's put ourselves in Mary and Joseph's shoes. You've lost the Son of God. 
You think you know where he is. You've traveled 40 to 50 miles. You're no doubt physically, emotionally, mentally exhausted when you finally find him. How far do you go in disciplining God's son? Do you, do you spank him and put that on your record? I mean, this is your, this is, yeah, the kid you are raising, you're in charge of, but he's also your judge. He's your creator. Parents, have you ever felt like you've been in a no-win situation with your kids? Mary and Joseph set the bar, okay? You, it can't get worse than this. What do you do? How do you discipline God's son? What, what is appropriate in this moment? Well, Mary takes action in verse 48. His parents see him. They saw him. They were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. That word astonished there, that they were astonished in verse 48, means that they, were, they had exasperated marvel. Their breath was taken away at what they were seeing. Mary speaks up and wants to know why Jesus did what they did because he put them in great distress, meaning they were having great pain and torment and anguish. The parents of Jesus were torn up inside about losing him. He obviously meant a lot to them. And when they find their child, he isn't where he's supposed to be. And so they called him out. But the reality, here's what happened. Mary and Joseph moved and they expected God to move with them. But when God calls us out, it's not we leading the charge. We, as we just sang, are followers of God. We move when God moves. And if God doesn't move, we don't move. We're the followers. We're the disciples. And Mary and Joseph, I can't imagine the wrestling this would have had been in their mind to try to figure out what this relationship is supposed to be like. We're in charge of this child, but at the same time, he's in charge of everything. How do we parent this? How do we handle this? And so they ask Jesus a question, and what does Jesus do in return? He responds with a question. <laughs> Come on, parents, let's just be honest. You ask your kid, what were you thinking? And they responded, well, what were you thinking? <laughs> right hand of fellowship is about to come. I mean, I imagine Mary spoke up. Maybe, maybe Joseph had to be held back because he was about to knock the Savior spit out of him. I mean, you are not where you're supposed to be. You're supposed to be with us. We are in charge of you. It seems disrespectful, it seems dishonorable, but it can't be because to show disrespect and dishonor would be to sin. So how do we reconcile Jesus' words? One individual by the name of J.R. Edwards writes that Jesus' surprise is not that his parents came back for him. Instead, he is surprised that they did not know where to find him. Verse 49 is a significant verse in Scripture because it is the earliest and first words of Jesus that we have in the Gospels. That's the youngest Jesus you will ever read in Scripture, right there, speaking for the first time. And so there has to be a significance to his question. He says, why were you looking for me? 
It's a great question because we don't naturally look for God. We don't naturally go searching for God. It reminds me of the first question that God asked the man and woman when he came into the garden. Where are you? You see, God came looking for them and their sin and their disobedience. And Jesus asked the question to his parents because he is trying to give them this understanding of who he is. He knew they had an obligation to find him. But he's pointing out it's not they that found him, but he, God, who found Mary and Joseph. Why were you searching for me? His response is, where else would I be but, my, but with my father? Which is an interesting statement because Mary says in verse 48, Behold, your father and I have been searching for you. While Jesus responds, Did you not know I must be in my father's house? As a father, I imagine that felt like a jab to Joseph. He was the earthly, physical father of Jesus. But this reality is beginning to come out that this is not actually my son. This is God's son who is going to save the world. Jesus' question and statement is revealing to his parents that he is fully aware, even at the age of 12, of who he is. He says, I am in my father's house. And it's not speaking of just a physical location of the temple. To say my father's house says, I am about my father's business. I am about my father's mission. Perhaps the last eight to ten years that they have lived with Jesus, the first two years of stress is beginning to wear off. They were the parental figures of Jesus, but the reality is Jesus did not come to be their son. He came to be their savior. His entire life from birth to left, birth, death, resurrection, ascension was focused on one thing, his father's mission. He's not dishonoring, disrespecting his parents. He's reminding them who he is and why he came. And by his words, he's giving Mary and Joseph a glimpse into God's eternal salvation plan. There's some comfort here, though, for us. Verse 50, and they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. Parents, your kids ever done anything, said something, and you're just kind of like, what? We're in good company. Mary and Joseph did not understand what Jesus was saying. The conclusion of this event is as Jesus was submissive to the Father, so he began to be submissive to his heaven or to his earthly parents as well in verses 51 through 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And then we're going to jump forward about 20 some years to pick up where Jesus is. Our question this morning and our theme for this morning is where is Jesus here or where is Jesus? And the first thing we must tackle is the danger of assuming we have Jesus. In the passage, Mary and Joseph began a journey from Jerusalem to their hometown of Nazareth, supposing. That word supposing there in verse 44 means they were assuming. They assumed Jesus was in the group. For a day's travel, they assumed Jesus was with them until they realized that he wasn't. Again, we're not trying to diminish Mary and Joseph's parenting skills. They obviously were devout. They were obviously righteous. They were chosen and commissioned by God to parent Jesus Christ. But the danger of assuming that we have Jesus is the danger of assuming that we have salvation. Before dealing with that, I want, to, I want us to understand the security of salvation. The Bible reveals that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Romans chapter 8, I encourage you to read that at some point in time. Meaning nothing can take our salvation away from us if our salvation is in fact genuine. 
But what many people misunderstand about salvation and having Jesus is salvation is not what we can do. It is not reliant upon our ability, our prowess, our money, our education. But it is scary when you find out how many people actually assume that if I just live a good life, then there's no way that a good God will judge me to hell. The problem with that assumption is it fails to recognize that the Bible reveals every human being is born in sin. Every human being is born with a sinful nature and is that sinful nature which separates us from that good God, from the hope of heaven, and our good deeds, our good life, is not the remedy to that sin. The only remedy to sin is Christ and Christ alone. It isn't about what we do. It is about what Jesus did in dying for our sins on the cross, being placed in a tomb, and then rising three days later. It is what is known as sola fide. That's Latin. It means by faith alone to which we are justified. Justified means just as if we never sinned before God. It is by our faith in what Christ did, which then produces the work of Christ by the power of the indwelling Spirit inside of us. If we are placing our faith in our righteousness, meaning that, well, I go to church, I read my Bible, I'm involved in certain things, I give to the church financially. And those are all good things you can do and should be doing. But if you're placing your salvation in those things, in your good deeds, you're lost. You're heading for hell. It is by faith in Christ alone in His work. Let's just use our passage. Mary and Joseph were very committed. They were very dedicated. They were doing everything that the law of God was requiring them to do. They were in the right place at the right time sometimes. But in doing all the things that they were committed to and dedicated to do, they moved and assumed Jesus was with them. When we go through the Gospels, we're going to see Jesus encounters people who assume God is on their side simply because they're doing the right thing or they're living the right way or they appear to be righteous. And Jesus condemns them over and over again because it's not what we bring to the table. It's what God has already placed on the table. Salvation in Christ alone by faith alone so that no one can boast what Paul writes. And the danger of this, in Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 25, you can read that one later too. It's the very last parable in that chapter. Jesus gives a parable of the day of judgment. And the day of judgment, what Jesus reveals to us that I think we miss over and over again, but it's right there, it's plain as day. There are only two types of people on this planet. It's not gender, it's not race, it's not skin color, it's not political allegiances, it's not degrees, it's not wealth or poor. Two types of people on this planet. There are those who know Jesus and have Jesus, and there are those who don't know Jesus and don't have Jesus. And there are some in this party right here who don't know Jesus, assume they have Jesus, simply because they're doing things that looks like Christian things to do. But Jesus reveals there are two types of people. He's going to separate those two groups of people. 
One is going to be righteous and one is going to be wicked. And he's going to welcome the righteous who have placed their faith in him and him alone into eternal salvation in heaven. And then he's going to say to the wicked, they are cursed into the fire, eternal fire prepared for his devils and his angels. When we as God's people begin to understand there are people out there who actually think they're saved simply because they grew up in a Christian home or they go to church on Easter or Christmas time or they give or they do certain things that are Christian-like things, we need to understand that if they don't have Jesus, they are lost no matter how Christian they look. They need Jesus just as much as Mary and Joseph need Jesus, just as much as we need Jesus. A.W. Tozer wrote, Some of the nicest People in the world will never get into heaven, and we forget that. We look at somebody and think he or she is very nice, but we forget that salvation is not based upon a person's work of righteousness. Good people go to hell. It's sad, and it doesn't seem fair, but that's why we've got to preach the gospel. Because good people, just like you and I, still wrestle with sin. The only difference is our sin has been covered by the blood of the Lamb, by our faith in Him and Him alone. That's the only difference. We have eternal security, and they need it. There's also a danger, as Christians, as believers, to assume that Jesus is in something we are doing. And just because... I know they weren't here today, but just because the worship band practices and puts a set list together doesn't mean Jesus is there. Just because the preacher gets behind the pulpit and preaches a sermon doesn't mean it's about Jesus. And just because you showed up here this morning, and I'm so glad you did, doesn't mean you came for Jesus. People make music, they make the sermons, and they make church all about them all of the time. And some of us have experienced that. But we're in danger of doing the same thing when we assume simply because we've showed our beautiful face here on Sunday morning that Jesus is here too. What have we been doing to prepare to meet with Jesus in this moment this week? You know, here in a couple of weeks, and I, teachers, you can clog up your ears if you want. Here in a couple of weeks, teachers are going back to school, and there's going to be kids there too. <laughs> That'll be new. They haven't done that in like six months. <laughs> and so I'm married to a teacher, and, and she's preparing. She's been preparing since technically summer began, just trying to figure out how are we going to do this. And, um, and she's been working out plans, and as we go on walks, I just kind of let her talk to me and She's just kind of thinking out loud, and sometimes she asks for my input. Sometimes she just needs, I think, to release some stuff. Am I right? She never asks for my ideas, except when she does, and then I know I need it. But I know all teachers and faculty, and they've been preparing and getting ready for whatever this school year is going to look like. This week, sports teams, high school sports teams, are going to start getting back together and start practicing, getting ready for a fall season. They're preparing for what's coming. I'm not trying to diminish these preparations. But how have we prepared as God's people to meet the Holy of Holies this morning? How have we prepared when we open our scriptures throughout the week 
to hear the voice of God speaking to our hearts. I'm excited we're having Wednesday Night Live here. I mean, God willing, I mean, that's really where it is. God willing, we're going to have Wednesday Night Live. But I had to ask myself, am I excited that we're having Wednesday Night Live, or am I excited and expecting God to meet people during Wednesday Night Live? Are we excited our small groups are going to start meeting up again? Are we excited that we're going to get to meet with our brothers and sisters of Christ and meet with Jesus? How are we preparing ourselves to meet with God, the Holy of Holies? Where is Jesus in our life in this moment? Is he front and center or is he in the back burner? I honestly think what happened with Mary and Joseph is they just got comfortable. It had been about 10 years since they've had any major event in their life. They just expected where they were going to go. Jesus was going to follow I think they got into the motions of being parents to the Son of God. But we can do the same thing. We can get into the motions of being a child of God. Well, God, I showed up. Put my star on the board. Remember when he, did you all, you all go to Sunday school and you had that the attendance thing? Who read your Bible? Who read, who's here? Who brought a friend? Who brought money? I'm glad you're here. Trust me, if there was like four or five people here, I would go home and I'd be like, they don't like me anymore. But we really need to ask, did I really come prepared to meet with the God who loves me? God who will never leave me or forsake me. The God we sang about. Did I come prepared to meet with the Holy of Holies? Or did I just assume because I'm here Something will happen. No, I'm wrong. I think God can do anything. But our assumptions can lead us going through the motions in the Christian life. We can be committed and dedicated to the things of God and still not have God. Where was Jesus? Where was Jesus in the passage? All right. Push the person next to you. you know, we're almost, we're almost, we're, we're wrapping this up. Okay, I promise. Where was Jesus in the passage? He was at the Father's house. He was at the temple. It did not just, he did not, I'm going to be at my Father's house. Again, it's not just about the physical location of the temple. When he said my Father's house, he said, I will be about my Father's business. I'm going to be about my Father's mission. That is why I am here. Yes, I am your son, but I am all about this. And this is what it means when we have Jesus. We get a new heart and a spirit inside of us that enables us to be about God's mission and business on this earth. This is our heartbeat here at Harvest Hill. Meet Jesus. When I meet Jesus, it didn't stop there. I'm going to mature in this relationship with God so I can be in ministry for the kingdom of God and I can multiply by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what we're called to do. And so, yes, we know Jesus as our Lord and Savior, but are we being, have a willing heart to be obedient and connected and dedicated to the things that God wants to do through us in this world so people, when they look at us, don't assume we have Jesus. They know it because Jesus just keeps coming out. They just keep seeing Jesus in us. That's what it means to be a Christian. It means a little Christ. So to be with Jesus is to be about God's mission. And if you don't like the sound of that, 
Read through the Gospels and read through the book of Acts and Paul's letters and see if you can find something that disagrees with it. God wants to use you. And he's empowered you by his spirit to be used. That the power and love of Christ would come out of you. But as we wrap up this morning, it comes to a big question. Is Jesus here? Not is he just here physically, but does Jesus live inside of you? Is he the Lord and Savior of your life? Or have you been trying to do all the things to prove yourself to God when you can? It's a losing battle. Is Jesus here? See, it's not something that your, your parents can decide for you, your aunt and uncle, your guardian can decide for you. It's not even something, if it's in your obituary, makes it guaranteed. Is Jesus Lord and Savior of your life in your heart? Do you have a relationship with God through Jesus? And some people might be offended this moment. You're like, well, you're making me really doubt my salvation. Sometimes we have to say, okay, am I actually living what I say I believe? Is Jesus guiding me, or have I left Jesus behind somewhere? But if you're here this morning and you do not have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, that's why God has guided you to this moment. So you don't have to assume anymore. You can know for certain. And it comes by admitting that you're a sinner. You fall short of God's holiness. But you believe, you may not fully understand it, but you believe that Jesus is God's Son who died for your sins. He rose again that you could be forgiven and given eternal life. And the Bible says you've come to that point or something stirring your heart that this is truth. And the Bible says you need to confess that truth that Jesus is your Lord and Savior with your mouth. And so I'm going to ask Jason, he's going to come stand down here, and Mike Marler is going to be standing over here. And if you need to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior for the first time, not to go through the motions, so I'm going to ask you to come down and just say, this is Mike, he'll be over here, this is Jason. I need Jesus. I need to be saved. They're going to pray with you and they're going to celebrate with you. Maybe you're like me. Where God really hit me this week is about just kind of getting into the motions. And just, I don't want to be in the motions in my relationship with a God who loves me so much. We're going to come this time of invitation. I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask Jamie to come up and join me again. Maybe. She gave me a look, so I don't know. She may or may not come up. We're going to sing some songs and just worship the God who loves us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for taking care of us. God, thank you for being a God who will not allow us to stay where we are. You're a God who continues to lead, continues to guide, continues to bring us closer to you, even if some things have to be chipped off. Lord, I thank you for all my brothers and sisters in Christ here this morning, Lord. I thank you for their desire to want to be with you and to be in your presence. I thank you for the good work you're doing in us through your spirit and your word. Father, I also pray for those here this morning who do not know you. Father, that the words that came out of my mouth were clear. That that relationship needs to change. It needs to change by you and you alone. 
So bring them to a place of repentance because the conviction you're placing on their heart that they need to begin a relationship with you. Father, thank you that you don't ask us to clean ourselves up or we have to get this in the right place. But Father, you just ask us to come and then let you do the work. So in this moment, as we sing these songs in this time of invitation, Father, I pray that you alone would be glorified. I pray you alone would know the hearts, whether they move forward and kneel before you or come forward to be prayed over. Father, you know our hearts, that we love you, and we want to love you more and know you more. So continue to guide and lead us in this time in response. Again, ask that you alone be glorified in it. Praise all in the name of Jesus. Amen.